This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, extreme measures, keeping the body alive when it's time to go. We've, over the past almost 100 years, been creating more and more aggressive treatments and technologies to keep the human body going and alive. Finding a better path to the end of life when Radio Health Journal returns. Experts say that the meat and potatoes of our diets today should be potatoes and meat. A more plant-based diet with Idaho potatoes in the center of your plate has definite health benefits. It can help prevent diabetes, control high blood pressure, and improve heart health. A plant-based diet can also help you lose weight and improve your intake of essential vitamins and minerals, according to registered dietitian Danielle Omar. Potatoes are packed with nutrients especially potassium, a critical mineral that supports heart health, and unfortunately, 97% of Americans don't get enough of. It's extremely important consumers better understand the nutritional profile of the foods they're eating so they can choose foods with nutrients that best fuel their bodies. Potatoes have no fat, cholesterol, or sodium. They're naturally gluten-free. No wonder experts agree that fresh Idaho potatoes are a heart-healthy food. Find out more at idahopotato.com. Jessica Zitter wanted to be a doctor ever since she was a toddler and listened to her teddy bear's heartbeat through her father's stethoscope. As an adult, she proudly followed in her father's footsteps. But instead of becoming a surgeon like him, she decided to specialize in pulmonary and critical care medicine. In this environment, she both witnessed and participated in extreme measures to keep patients alive. With all of the best intentions, which I have shared as I've gone through, We want to do everything we can to maximize life and to help people. And we've, over the past almost 100 years, been creating more and more aggressive treatments and technologies to keep the human body going and alive. And doctors have gotten more and more specialized in our training, and we're focusing in more and more on each individual organ system or each very fancy gadget or catheter that we're using. And we've unfortunately in doing that, lost sight of the patient. It's like using a microscope and not realizing that you're touching the side of an elephant. You're not realizing that you've actually got an actual being there. Zitter is author of Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. In it, she coins a chilling phrase to describe the kind of health care that dying patients receive. She calls it the end-of-life conveyor belt. The end-of-life conveyor belt is what I see as the default application of our fantastic treatments that sometimes can be very helpful, but the default use of these treatments on everybody indiscriminately, regardless of their prognosis, of their likelihood of benefiting. And so as a result, the end-of-life conveyor belt happens when seriously ill, terminally ill, frail elderly patients are, without any conversation, without any questioning, also put onto this treatment at all costs, consecutive application of treatments as each organ begins to fail, and ultimately many of these people just eventually end up dying encased in a whole variety of machinery and technology. Zitter recalls a day in the intensive care unit when she was trying to insert a needle into the neck of a dying woman who was on dialysis. At that time, the hospital's administration was trying to enhance communication in the ICU. So a communications specialist named Pat was on the unit, 
taking notes on a clipboard. And Pat was there, and they had won this grant that I didn't know anything about. And it was the beginnings of the palliative movement, and we're going to try to enhance communication in the intensive care unit. And so Pat all of a sudden was all over the place telling me I wasn't talking to this person correctly, and I hadn't informed this person of their prognosis, and why was I doing this procedure when it wasn't really going to help, and this person was having pain, and I wasn't managing it, and I thought she was very annoying. And I was getting ready to insert the needle into this woman's neck, and I look up, and I see Pat standing in the doorway. She puts her hand up to her ear like a pretend phone, and she says, call the police. They're torturing a patient in the ICU. And it was that moment that really I kind of credit as my epiphany moment. What passed through her mind then were all the previous 10 years of extreme measures making her patients suffer. And as she stood at the bedside, Zitter suddenly realized she hadn't even asked this woman whether she wanted the catheter inserted in her neck. Maybe she wouldn't want to have had this catheter put in. Maybe she would have wanted to be allowed to die in peace. And at that moment, I decided, you know what? I need to learn a different way. And I went to Pat, and she became my mentor. And that's when I started myself starting to train and learn about palliative medicine. So now I practice both intensive care medicine and palliative medicine, and I feel that it has made me into a better doctor. According to Zitter, to palliate means to cloak, to shield people from suffering. Palliative care doctors really learn how to manage pain and nausea and coughing, shortness of breath, any kind of symptom that you can imagine, a physical symptom from disease. And they're also spiritual crises and emotional distress, anxiety, depression, all of the things that come along with serious illness. It's not just patients who are actually dying. There are many patients who benefit from palliative care who are not dying. Palliative care has a tremendous track record at really improving these kinds of symptoms. When you get a palliative care team involved and somebody's really got a lot of suffering, we have a, probably over a 90% success rate at managing and improving people's quality of life so that they can go on to live the best that they can live until it's their time to die. But what if the patient can no longer speak for him or herself? Zitter says that's when the patient needs a surrogate decision maker. When patients can no longer speak for themselves, it is their surrogates who get to speak in their stead. And that's why we really hope that those surrogates are really, truly informed about that patient and what that patient would want in a whole variety of circumstances. But as you can imagine, since we don't talk about death as a society, most of the time those surrogate decision makers have never had a conversation and don't know what that person would want, and it's really anybody's guess. And a lot of times we defer to continuing to treat aggressively because the surrogate just says, well, gee, I don't think they'd want this, but I'm not comfortable saying no, saying don't keep this breathing machine in. And so a lot of times we continue treating people aggressively because those conversations were never had and the family's not comfortable saying, I really feel that I know this person well enough to know that he wouldn't have wanted this. So it's all about communication and clarity and getting these preferences and values out in the open. However, Zitter says that even if a patient wants to stop extreme measures, doctors often don't know how to de-escalate the treatment. De-escalation means, okay, you've escalated care to this level. You've got all sorts of things running, all sorts of drips and treatments and machines attached to the patient. And then you say, well, this patient's clearly not getting better. And the surrogate says to you, I know my mother, and she wouldn't want to live the rest of her life on machines if she wasn't going to get better. She just wouldn't want that. She told me, and she wouldn't want it. And we say, okay, now it's time to say this person would prefer to be allowed to pass naturally. So then what do you do? You've got all these things attached to this patient, some of which are keeping her heart beating. How do you remove these things one at a time in such a way 
as to allow the person to die naturally. It's so hard for us. Every little thing that we remove feels like ripping off a Band-Aid, and for doctors, too. Despite that realization, she says that, unfortunately, medical students today aren't being taught how to de-escalate treatment and that they need to. We can make things linger even when we have information from the patient or the family that this is not what the patient would want, to be propped up on these machines. And so we have to learn how to withdraw these types of treatments the same way that we so rapidly applied them. We need to withdraw them in a way that will also allow that person to achieve what was important to them. In her book, Zitter describes six steps patients and their families can take to achieve what's most important to them and avoid the end-of-life conveyor belt. The six steps along the path of the first part of the appendix which show you how to move yourself into a place of action and empowerment in order to get what you want. Ultimately, in the current climate and the way we practice medicine now, you know, in an ideal world, it would be the patient who instructs us on what to do. And a lot of times, patients might disagree with what we think would be appropriate or what we would do if it were us in the bed, but we defer to that and we respect it. Hopefully, that patient actually has been truly informed about what the prognosis is and what their benefits and burdens are of these particular treatments. Intensive care in America can often be a grueling experience, especially for the dying. But according to Zitter, it doesn't have to be. You can learn more about these six steps, our guest, Dr. Jessica Zitter, and her book, Extreme Measures, by visiting our website at radiohealthjournal.net. Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hansen. Our production director is Sean Waldron. I'm Nancy Benson. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. We've all seen a lot of stories in the news about contaminants in drinking water. No wonder that 86% of American adults have concerns about their water quality. So what can you do to ensure you have cleaner, safer, more pure-tasting water for you and your family? Culligan International's Truth About Water campaign can help. Zach Schreck is Director of Product Management at Culligan. Thousands of water systems around the country show excess levels of contamination. Testing the water coming out of your tap is extremely important, especially if you notice corroded plumbing fixtures, unpleasant odors and tastes, or discolored water. Did you know that some contaminants have no odor, taste, or smell? Your local Culligan man can test your water and provide solutions for your particular problems. For example, a reverse osmosis drinking water system is convenient and cost-effective, giving you great-tasting water right from the tap. National Drinking Water Month in May is more relevant than ever. Visit Culligan.com to contact your local Culligan man and find out more about Culligan water treatment products. Medical notes this week. One of the most dangerous professions of all is firefighter, but the job carries more than just the risk involved in answering a call. Nearly half of all on-duty deaths are a result of heart attacks, often after the call is over. Now a study in the journal Circulation may show why. Researchers say that extreme heat combined with physical exertion dehydrate the body, divert blood flow to the skin, lower blood pressure, and increase blood clotting in the body. Firefighters involved in the study rescued a simulated victim during exposure to temperatures as high as 750 degrees. People are supposed to get eight hours of sleep per night if they can, but more than nine hours a night could be an early sign of dementia. A study in the journal Neurology finds that elderly people who consistently sleep more than nine hours a night have twice the risk of dementia over the next 10 years as people who sleep less. The risk climbs to six times normal in long sleepers without a high school degree. 
And finally, if you want people to avoid junk food and vending machines, make them wait. In a study presented to the Society of Behavioral Medicine, researchers rigged vending machines with a 25-second delay before dispensing junk food and a notice of the delay on the machine's LED screen. Purchasers had a chance to buy something else to avoid the delay, and many did. Healthy snack purchases increased by as much as 5%. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.